0: Open your Bibles to Psalm 31, Psalm of David. Doesn't really need me to to repeat what's been said and what's obvious to everybody. This is truly uh, an unprecedented time. But I tell you, it was really sweet to think about, to picture little groups of Grace Community Church all over three or four counties singing to the Lord. And I want you to know that that what, what we're doing right now is actually the norm for a lot of people. This is a norm. And as many of you know, Tony and I spent some time in China in the midst of this, actually at the very genesis of this pandemic pandemic. And we really got a taste, a real sense of um, what we take for granted. The, the, the freedoms in this com- country, the provisions, the ability to meet together as a, as a church family. I mean, during our time in China, we, we saw fear everywhere. Uh, everybody we saw. We saw the police state. We felt trapped uh, in a besieged city. We, we feared for provisions. We felt cut off. We got a sense, even though we weren't personally persecuted, we got a sense of, of that sort of religious restraint uh, happening all over the place. And we certainly got a sense of these small gatherings as the only way uh, in which we could uh, worship the Lord. And during that time, uh, and in my normal reading, I read Psalm 31, and it was such a help to me. And all of this had a great effect on me, and I, I want us to consider that now. I want us to, I want this to have a great effect to you. We, we've sort of joked around about this phrase, but I want to repurpose this famous quote that says that we should not waste a crisis. Let's don't waste this crisis. Let, let's let this sovereignly ordained moment in history that's unprecedented, let's, let's let it have its full effect. Like we've prayed, let's, let's draw near to the Lord like never before. And let's, let's really take for granted the things that we now miss, these ordinary means of, of grace, the gathering with the body of Christ. And let's grow in genuine faith and let's gain a, an experiential faith the knowledge of a faithful God, as He proves Himself faithful in these uh, potentially desperate times for many people, the Lord is going to prove Himself faithful. And let's see, let's see the vanity of the world, and let's stand in awe uh, of God uh, as He demonstrates His sovereignty in all the earth. And so, we're going to look at Psalm thirty-one. And I want us to 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 consider these, these three different components in Psalm uh, 31. One is that we we have this incredible transparency into David's life. It's almost like a, a looking glass into his heart and his mind as he goes through great distress. And I want us to see um, uh, that that David experienced much more than we've. Probably all I've ever experienced, but I want us to find a comfort in um, this psalm. And I want us to see how David uh, talks about God's faithfulness and his power and his goodness and this testimony to God's faithfulness. And I want God to be glorified. And I want you to see that how David, in all of this, is exhorting God's people, you and me, to trust in God. And I want our faith to be built up especially in a time like this. So let's read the entire psalm, and we're going to focus in on the very last phrase uh, where David exhorts us to wait for the Lord. Read along with me uh, in your Bibles. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known my distress, the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me, I have been forgotten like like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to shield. Let their lying lips be mute, which speak insolently, insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and have worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be The Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried for help. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays those who act in pride. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And so that last sentence, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. When when I read this uh, a month or so ago, I remembered that this is a phrase that that I've seen over and over again in Scripture. And... I had actually begun a study over it and had come back to it many times and and wanted to to, to really dig in and see what it is that God means when he says we need to wait for him. We need to wait for the Lord. And so I decided in that moment it a really good time to figure out what that means. And so that's what I want to do uh, today is to help you see exactly what that means, especially in a time of distress. And so we're going to see where does this come from? Where does this call to wait for the Lord come from? And when are we called to wait for the Lord? And what does it mean? And that's what we'll spend most time on is what does it mean to wait for the Lord? And why? Why Why do we need to do this? Why are we called to do this? And how long? How long, oh Lord? Another phrase you hear over and over again. So this first question, where do we see it? And the, the, the quick answer is all over Scripture. This, this call to wait for the Lord is all throughout Scripture. We see it in Moses. We see it in the prophets. We see it in the wisdom literature. And we see it especially in the Psalms. In the book of Genesis, Jacob said, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And in the prophets, there's a, there's a couple of texts there that we're, we're all very familiar with uh, where it calls us to wait for the Lord. Isaiah 40 says, Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. And then the one bright spot in Lamentations, another text that we're familiar with about God's mercies being new every morning, there uh, it says the Lord is good to those who wait for him. The proverb says, wait for him. For the Lord, for He will deliver you. And all throughout the Psalms, we see, wait for the Lord. In Psalm 32, it says, our, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 37, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. And so you see, this is all throughout Scripture, this concept of waiting for the Lord. And so, what does it mean? When are we to do this? Why are we to do this? Well, the answer to the when is all the time. When are we called to wait for the Lord? All the time. But most commonly, when we see this phrase, in the Bible, it's usually in times of distress, times of great distress, times when, when things aren't really going as we expected, when, when, when things aren't going our way, when things look impossible. And we see in this psalm uh, this enormous range of distress that ends with this call to wait on the Lord. We've, we've got anything from discomfort to disaster to near death and through every bit of it we get a glimpse inside David's mind and his heart and his prayers to the Lord during all this distress and at the end he calls us all to wait for the Lord and so keep keep Psalm 31 open in your lap and I want to put your eyes on all these different ways in which David expresses great distress I'm just going to hit them real quick because I, I want you to see this great range both from external distress and internal distress, real threats and perceived threats. And I want you to uh, find solidarity with David here and, and, and see that you're not the first one, not the first one of God's people to experience great distress. And so in verse 1, he calls on the Lord to be his refuge to not let him be put to shame, to be delivered. Verse 2, he's crying out to the Lord to incline his ear to him, to listen to his prayers, and look what he says. He rescued me now, speedily. I need help in a hurry. He asked the Lord to be a rock, a a fortress, a refuge. He asked to be saved. Verse 4, to be taken out of a net. In verse 7, he calls what he's experiencing Affliction. He says, you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. Verse 9. He says again, I am in distress. He's crying out to the Lord and he acknowledges, I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. Verse 10, we see sorrow. We see strength failing. We see... Bones wasting away. Verse 11, we see adversaries. We see reproach. We see that he's become a dread of others. He's been cut off. People are running from him. Verse 12, he feels like he's been forgotten, like a dead man. He's broken. People are conspiring against him. He has people whispering. He's got terror on every side. They're making schemes against him, plots to take his life. Verse fifteen, he's being persecuted. Eighteen, he's got lying lips; people speaking insolently against him in pride and contempt. What he calls in verse twenty the strife of tongues. And in verse twenty one and twenty two, he was in a besieged city, cut off. He felt he felt like he was cut off even from God's sight. Yet, in verse twenty three. David says to all the saints, that's you and me, brother. He says, be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And so this call to wait on the Lord is given to us in the time in which it's most difficult to wait for the Lord, in times of great distress. And so if this is the prescription in times of distress, we need to figure out what it means. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? And in, in studying this this phrase, I've seen, uh, there's probably more than this, but I've seen three common uh, things that, that make up this uh, concept of waiting for the Lord. And, and all three of them are in this same psalm. And so I want you to see them. And I've got, in the worship guide, there's this little fill-in-the-blanks. I like to do fill-in-the-blanks. I think it helps focus your attention on some of the main concepts. And so the first one is that we should delightfully, we should have delightful confidence in God's greatness. Delightful confidence in God's greatness. And we're going to see that. The second one is we need to have a right hope in God's goodness. A right hope. In God's goodness. So we've got God's greatness and God's goodness. And then when we get that, we need to plea to the Lord. We need an expectant plea. Expectant pleas for God's grace. So, this first answer to the question, what what does it mean? What does it mean to, to wait for the Lord? Well, one way is... That we should have a delightful confidence in God's greatness. And so that starts with the truth this fact. God is great. Like, just simple fact. Great is the Lord. That, that's truth. And I hope everybody that, that hears that, that reads that, believes that. God is great and greatly to be praised, God is sovereign. We've acknowledged that already, and I'm about to acknowledge it a whole lot more. God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is in absolute, total control of all things. All things are His servants, Psalm 119 says. All things serve the Lord, everything. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And here's the first question about that. Do you believe that? I hope that everybody at Grace Community Church believes that, believes in the absolute sovereignty of God, the greatness of God in every way, that every hair on your head is numbered, that, that every sparrow that falls, every raindrop, every lightning bolt, every puff of wind, every blade of grass that grows, every move by every nation, every decision, every decree by every king, every man and every step is ordered by the Lord. Even the virus, even every virus, even this microbe that has been unleashed on the world is under God's control and under His direction. Every life and every death. Do you believe that? And if you believe it, Are you okay with it? And sometimes there's a big difference between that. Sometimes we we can believe that but not be okay with it. But I want want us to go even further than believing it and being okay with it. I want us to delight in it. We need to delight in that. We need to delight in God's greatness. And that's what is necessary in great times of distress. But before you can delight in His greatness, you've got to believe it. Before you can believe it, you have to acknowledge it. And that's what David does in this psalm. He acknowledges the greatness of God. He he demonstrates an absolute delightful confidence in God's sovereignty. Look in verse 2 and 3. David is counting on this. He, He is absolutely counting on God's power and his strength and his might. Not his own strength, not his own power, not his own might, but God's. He says, God, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress, because you are, in verse 3. He says, for you are that. Be that because you are that, Lord. He acknowledges God's sovereignty in leading him. Look at verses 3 and 4. He acknowledges God's sovereignty in leading him both into and out of distress. I want you to note that. In this one sentence here, he acknowledges God's leading him into distress and out of distress. He says, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they've hidden from me. Well, God, if, if you're leading me, how did I get in this net? God led David and delivered David. David is confident. He even delights in God's omniscience, And God's willingness and God's ability to act in kindness towards him. Look at verse 7. He says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. David commits his life his body, even his soul into God's hands. Look at verse 14 and 15. He says, I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. My times are in your hand. And I, w- I want you to not read that reluctantly. Like God's times are in my hands. I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to about that, but I want you to read that confidently. That God's got everything in your life under control. That your times really are in his hands. Even in the face of death, he says, my times are in your hands. You rescue me from the hand of my enemy. He's he's confident about this, not just in his body, but also his soul. Not just now, but forever. In verse 5, he says, into your hand I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me. Where does all this confidence in God's sovereignty and power and wisdom and omniscience come from? It comes from experience with God. God David has had this experience of God delivering him before. He said, you've seen my affliction. You've known my distress and you've not delivered me into the hand of my enemies. You set me in a broad place. You have rescued me before. And so David's confidence in the lord is based on experience god's word said he would deliver and he has delivered and he will deliver him again this reminds me of one of my favorite texts from paul when he is writing to the corinthians and he talks about his great distress this this great burden that he's had this uh, utter burden, this sentence of death that he felt like he had and he and he assures the people that God's going to deliver him. He says, God has delivered us from such a de- deadly peril and he will deliver us. He has and he will and he will again. This is the faithfulness of God that David is giving testimony to, that Paul is giving testimony to. This total trust in a great God, total trust in the sovereignty of God, just a total surrender to His omniscience, His wisdom, not ours, His power, not ours. This delightful confidence in the greatness of God. And so, I want to—I want you to think about right now: what is your greatest anxiety? Now, what is your greatest anxiety? What is—what is it that you fear? Uh, in the near future, uh, the long-term future. And I want you to look at verse 14 and 15. And as you think about this uncertainty, I want you to ask the question, can you say with David, without reservation, I trust you, Lord. My times are in your hands. I want you to be able to say that. I want you to be able to say that with confidence and delight. I trust you, Lord. I I trust you, Lord. My time's in your hands, and that's exactly where I want my time to be, is in your hands. I trust you, Lord, you and you alone, not the government, not the CDC, not the Federal Reserve, not your bank account, not your boss, your clients, or your company not your spouse, not your own strength, not your youth. None of those things that we lean on so hard. We need to be have our trust solely in a sovereign, omniscient, all-wise God. Because that's who that's who holds our life in his hand. I trust you, Lord. My times are in your hands, and I want you to realize that it is true. Your times plural, all of them, are indeed in the hands of a great God. Right now, today, totally. Are you okay with that? Do you delight in that? Do you trust Him? Can you imagine a world without a sovereign God? A lot of people has a worldview just like that, that there is no sovereign God, that all there is is luck or chance or these... Indiscriminate forces of nature. How fearful would that be, especially in a time like this? You know, when uh, Tony and I were praying together this week, one one of us I can't remember prayed, uh, "Lord, help us in these uncertain times." And I thought about that, like as that was being prayed, and, and I realized these are not uncertain times. And for me, that was profound. These are are not uncertain times. These times are certain. They are as certain as the sun coming up tomorrow. Every molecule and every moment is working together in, in, in very certain concert with God's plans and purposes and decrees. Every bit of it. All certain. But here's the rub. What is certain to God is often a mystery to us. And therein for us lies the problem. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, listen. this God's providence may be a mystery to us, but God is not. You hear that? God is not a mystery to us. His providence may be, but he is not. Our God is not a mystery. He has revealed himself, and he has revealed himself as great. And the world doesn't know that, God, but we do. We do. And we need to delight in that. Our times are in his hands. Our times are in his hands. I want you to be able to say, I am so glad that the Lord God Almighty is in total control of my life right now. He's in total control of my life. Every single aspect of my life. My present, my future, every good thing and every hard thing is from the Lord. This is what it it means. This is part of what it means to wait for the Lord to have this confident rest in the greatness of God. And so when they say, Where is your God? When the nations say, Where is your God? We smile and say, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He pleases, and whatever He pleases, He does. We should also, though, understand that God is good. God is great, but God is also good. And we should rightly hope in God's goodness. This is the second part of what does it mean to wait for the Lord? To rightly hope in God's goodness. Fact another truth about God God is good. Period. God is good and what he does is good. The Lord is good and does good. Now, here's the rub on this point though. Everybody but an atheist would probably say that. Oh yeah, God's good. God's good. He's been good to me. But what do they mean when they say that? What does it really mean that God is good? And I want you to realize that God has resolved to get much glory about his goodness. Much When Moses asked God, a lot of us have studied Exodus now. When Moses asked God, he said, show me your glory. How did God respond? He did not say, okay, okay, Moses, I'll show you my glory. He said, no, I will show you my goodness. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And then what did he reveal? He revealed what? His patience, his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, his forgiveness, He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. But that's not all he said. Again, when he makes his goodness pass before Moses, he also says, but I will by no means Clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, the third and fourth generation. See, everybody wants to say God is good, but how many of them do you think consider in that God's devotion to righteousness and justice and His devotion to punishing sin? We are idolaters by nature and we all want a good God. But, but when we say that by nature, we th- we think we want a God that gives us good stuff all the time. A God who is unconditionally on our side. A God who punishes others but not us. But that's not the God of Scripture. That's idolatry. And we need to have a right understanding of God's goodness. Genuine faith recognizes God's goodness for what it is. That It recognizes that our own sinfulness... Uh, has separated us from God, and the only appeal that we have is to God's mercy and grace. David knows this. He knows this about God. He knows this about himself. David knows that he is a sinner, and he knows that God is righteous, and he knows this, and this is what I want us to realize, that any and all goodness that comes from God is only through redemption and grace. The redemption and grace is brought to us by Christ. Look look in verse 10. David acknowledges his iniquity. He says, my strength fails because of my iniquity. But in verse 5 he says, but you've redeemed me. Verse 9, he's asking for grace. Verse 1, he's asking for deliverance, but only in God's righteousness. In verse 16, he's asking for salvation, but only according to God's steadfast love. David is not... David is not coming before an idol. David is coming before a holy and a righteous God, seeking grace and mercy. This is the goodness of God, and we need to rightly understand that. David tells us, uh, he, he exhorts us in verse 23. He says, love the Lord, all you saints. He says, the Lord preserves the faithful. But abundantly repays those who act in pride. So I want you to hear what he's saying there. He is bearing witness to this God that we need to wait on. He's bearing witness to this great and sovereign God. He's bearing witness to his faithfulness and his goodness. And he says, The Lord preserves everybody? No, the faithful. Only the faithful. God preserves only the faithful, only those who trust in him. Only those who are his, that are redeemed by him. Only his saints. But it says here, in his justice, he abundantly repays those who trust themselves. Who trust themselves, who see themselves as sovereign. Who see themselves as good. Those who act in pride, which is the opposite of faith. The Lord is going to bring them low. In verse 19, he he does the same thing. He makes this distinction about God's grace. He talks about how abundant God's grace is. And he talks about this goodness being stored up for those who fear him. This goodness is for those who take refuge in him. And so the, the question is, does this describe you? Does this describe us? Are we the faithful? Are we the redeemed? Are we the ones who are trusting in the finished work of Christ? Those who fear the Lord, who come to Him for refuge and mercy and grace and goodness, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on His goodness in Christ. And So David rightly understands God's goodness and he rightly understands and hopes in god's goodness and i want you to see just how much so in verse 19 verse 19 he says oh how abundant how abundant is your goodness it literally literally means how great how much goodness there is in the lord and so how does he know this? How does David know this? It's because just like he has experienced and he has witnessed and borne testimony to God's sovereignty and his greatness, he has also experienced the goodness of the Lord. And so look, look at what he says in this. This is a, To me, this is a key sentence in this psalm, this verse 19, about the goodness of God. He talks about how abundant this goodness is. And he says, this goodness is stored up and worked. And so here we see that God has worked goodness already for David. Just like he has worked goodness already for all who take refuge in him. And I hope you would say this. I hope you, with a right understanding of God, right understanding of the gospel, I hope you would say this. God has been good to me. Has God been good to you? I mean, Would you say with David, oh, Lord, how great is your goodness? How great is your goodness? I can say that. I can say that. I know these brothers in this room can say that. I know most of you will say that, that God has been good to me, far more good than I can ever imagine. And that all starts with this total forgiveness. The goodness of God towards us is Begins with the forgiveness. And that, man, that is exactly how David starts the very next psalm in our Bible. It says, Wait for the Lord, and the very next psalm says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. We have a good God that forgives sinners, which is incredible. Thought, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And to that I say, amen. I don't know how many times it's been said here, not here, but from the pulpit of Grace Community Church that our greatest need has already been taken care of. And it is so true. Like this is the goodness of God. That a good and righteous and holy God would actually forgive sinners. How abundant. If you know your sin, you can rightly say, how abundant is your goodness? How abundant is your goodness? Well, I want to remind you that even though last week we woke up in a different world, there's one thing that didn't change, the cross of Christ. Like that did not change. The blood of Jesus still cleanses us From all sin. That has not changed. That goodness has not changed. That goodness will never change. That goodness will never go away. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Thanks be to God for that goodness. That inexpressible gift. So. Has God been good to you? If you know the gospel. You have to say yes and amen. But you know it even goes beyond that even while we were sinners. Uh, yes, we've been saved, declared righteous, but He continues to pour out goodness upon us now in His life. How kind has God been to you? How merciful has God been to you? How much grace have you received? How many times you have been rescued? How much has He provided? How often has He provided for you? Just remember, saints, just remember the past. It's, it's so funny. We remember every meal we've missed if ever any, but have we counted the ones we've received? Thousands of thousands of times, abundance upon abundance, we have received from the hand of the Lord even while we were sinners. But you know what? There's more. God is not done. And this, this text in verse 19 says that goodness has not already been worked for us, but there's more. It says here, goodness which you have stored up for those who feared you, for who fear you. Put your, put your eyes on that sentence and think about what he's saying. There if if you have any sense of the goodness that you've already received from God, and you read that sentence there, that says there's more. That says that there's more goodness stored up in this. This is a rich word, and, and that's a pun intended, because this is, this is really meaning uh, just like you would take your gold and store it up. That's what this means, to, to lay up treasure, to hide it, to guard it, to treasure it, to put it in reserve. There is a treasure trove. Hear me. There is a treasure trove of goodness that waits for the one who waits for the Lord. You hear that? In distress, this is really good news. The one who understands the good news already of the goodness we've been given should rejoice and rightly hope that there is more to come. There's more to come. And this is the God that David is trusting in, that that David is resting in, hoping in, waiting for. In times of distress, in times of uncertainty, he is waiting for this God. And I want to make sure you put these two things together. That God is great and God is good. You need to put both of those things together like that little prayer. And and many of you have heard me say this over and over again. I don't remember the day I realized it, but I was taught that little prayer growing up. God is great, God is good. I don't remember the day I realized it, but uh, ever since I'm like, man, that is one of the greatest things I could have ever been taught and I had no idea. The truth and the richness in that. And you need to learn it. You need to learn it. God is great and God is good. And I want you to imagine for a minute if if, if we had one without the other. If we had a great God, one that is all-knowing and sovereign and powerful, but he wasn't good, that would be horrifying. At the, at, at the worst, at the least, it would be one God that would be indifferent to to how he exercises all that power. And many people think this. Many people who hate God will will see God only as some powerful, cruel man above. But the other side is just as as bad uh, to, to, to think of God as being so good, so kind, and so merciful, but yet without power. So many people... Uh, religious people right now that I've, that I've seen just lately uh, about um, talking about how good God is and yet not sure if he, he can take care of this situation. Thinking the devil has more power. The devil's doing this and we're, we're, we're going to... I want to get into all some of the crazy things. But to think that God is good but not powerful enough to control his own creation. But to... But the beautiful part is that our God is both. Our God is great and our God is good. And with that combination, why should we fear? How can we fear? His greatness abounds. He is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he pleases. But he is also merciful and gracious and kind and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we are his redeemed. He is purchased us with the blood of his own son, if that God's for us, who can be against us? This is exactly what Paul means. He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Like if we believe this about our God, He's great and he is good and he has purchased us with the blood of his own son. What do we fear? What, what, where is worry? Why should we doubt anything? These are very certain times. Very certain times. Therefore, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. The last, the last explanation of, of, of what it means, you know, what are we to do in this? You know, as we Trust the sovereignty of God and we just rightly hope in his goodness. What else do we do? And the other is to call upon his name. Ask for more grace. Put forth these expectant pleas for grace. And that's what we call it when God sovereignly does good to sinners. We call that grace. And through Jesus Christ, we've all received grace upon grace and we should want more if we know this if we understand the grace of God we should want more especially in times of distress Moses knew this he knew the the greatness and goodness of God he knew that he'd received grace and guess what he's what he did when he realized I have received grace I want more Lord I want more David knows this. He knows the greatness of God. He knows the goodness of God. Guess what he does? He asks for more grace. He asked for more grace. This is what we should do. Look at, look at how he does this uh, just a couple of places in Psalm 31. Verse 2, he says, Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. I want you to understand what he's he's asking the eternal God of the universe to do. It's to bow down and listen to him and to act speedily. He's calling upon the Almighty Creator to bend his ear and listen. Guess what? He does. He does. God Almighty inclines his ear to his people. Verse 9, he says, Be. Gracious to me, Lord, for I am in distress. You see how those two things go together, together? If I'm in distress, guess what I need? I need to call upon God for more grace. In verse 15, he says, my times are in your hand. Rescue me. Verse 16, he says, make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Verse 17, he says, "O oh Lord, let me not be put to shame. For I call on you. And in verse 22, he makes a testimony to all of us and says, God heard his pleas. You heard the voice of my pleas when I cried to you for help. And so all through this psalm, in the midst of as we see him in distress, what is he doing? He's believing God. He's acknowledging who God is, and he is calling upon the name of the Lord. And so that's what we need to do. This waiting for the Lord includes asking, asking for more grace, earnest and fervent prayer. I want to hit as an explanation to to this uh, why it is that 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 God calls us to wait on him. Why do we have to persevere through times of distress and endure these grievous trials? Why doesn't God just constantly flex his sovereignty and constantly rain down goodness 24/7 on our lives. Why why do we have to wait for the Lord? And I just want you to understand that God, the same God who is great and who is good and who inclines his ear and hears our pleas for grace, he is a God of purpose and he does everything on purpose for a purpose. And the same is true about this concept of waiting on the Lord. He he is doing this on purpose. For a purpose. And I want you to see probably a million purposes, but I want you to see four really quick. One is to glorify his name. Like we are called to wait for the Lord to glorify his name. We we see that waiting for the Lord, we have to wait for the Lord because his leading is for his name's sake. This is what David says in verse 3 and 4. He talks about for your name's sake you'd lead me. And that that, that involves going into trouble and and out of trouble. And Paul, he experienced this over and over again. And he acknowledged the leading of the Lord, the, the, the prevention from going here, the troubled spirit that led him to go here. And he says, God in Christ always leads us for what purpose? To spread the knowledge of him, to bring glory to his name. This leading is for the glory of his name. And so wait for the Lord. And and I want you to see, as you're waiting for the Lord in times of distress, I want you to see and understand that He is leading you, even into distress and out of distress, He's leading you for the glory of His name. And be pleased to do that for the Lord. Because it leads to praise. It leads to great testimonies of praise. Like half of this psalm is a testimony of praise to God. It's David having been delivered, having experienced the greatness and goodness of God, telling us more about it so that we would uh, rely upon this, this Lord. So, uh, so you need to see this present distress as a future opportunity to minister to others, a future opportunity to praise God. And So the second reason God does this is to improve our faith, to improve our faith. Uh whenever these afflictions come upon people and you and I don't know if you've seen this in the past but when you see trials come into people's lives even those who profess Christ you see one of two things happen one the people end up hating God or they get stronger in the faith right and this is this is by design these things Cause us to grow in our faith and trust the Lord. Paul, uh, not Paul, David here, uh, in the midst of these unimaginable afflictions, uh, we see that his faith has been proven. His faith has been built. He says, I, he takes refuge in the Lord. He says over and over, I trust the Lord. He said, they pay regard to idols, but I trust the Lord. I have terror on every side, but I trust the Lord. And that's because, In part, David has been tested by God. Trials have come upon David, and he's been delivered. And so he has grown in his faith. Paul had a similar example. I've already made mention to it before uh, in the letter to the Corinthians. He talks about this great affliction, this great burden, but he says this was to make me rely upon God. This came upon me to make me rely not on ourselves, but to rely upon God who builds faith. The waiting on the Lord, wait for the Lord, builds genuine faith it proves that our faith is genuine this is what peter talks about i won't hit on that but he talks about grievous trials the tested genuineness of our faith and so waiting for the lord builds and proves genuine faith the other reason that we are called to do this is to actually prove god's faithfulness to us god loves to be proven God is faithful and he loves to be proven faithful. This brings glory to his name. This is is by design. If you see this chain reaction, God sovereignly brings trials. Through his good gift of faith, we wait for the Lord. He proves himself powerful and faithful and good. We trust him more. And he's glorified. Our faith is built up. Our faith is proven. And this is exactly how God see, David sees God. He calls him faithful. Into your hand I commend my, my spirit. Faithful God. And so, brothers and sisters, I, as we enter times of distress, wait for the Lord and experience his faithfulness. God will show you how faithful he is. And then, then the testimonies come. Uh, of how faithful God has been. The last thing I want you to see about the purpose of us having to wait for the Lord is to wean us off of this world, to wean us from this fallen world. This affliction, this distress, should cause a longing for eternal life, a longing for the age to come. Just like right now, the fact that we can't meet should create a longing for that which is good and right, and that is the body of Christ meeting. This affliction is meant to wean us from the world. Look at verse 6. He said, David says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I got to looking at the words there, and it, it actually means, like literally, it means they value. Useless vapor. I thought that was neat. I thought that was interesting. They value useless nothing. He's talking about those who don't know God. Those who who live in this world who do not know the God that we know, the, that do not know the God of the scripture, they value nothing. They value a whole lot of useless nothing. And now think about what happens with the useless nothing things you trust in get exposed and they vaporize when the vanities get shown as vanity what happens fear and anger and doubt and depression and that's exactly what we're witnessing all over the world right now I believe all the things that we that the world is trusted in proving to be useless useless David even, sees his own body, his own life as um, deteriorating and vain and full of sorrows. And In verses 9 and 10, he talks about his distress and his grief and his soul and body uh, sighing and failing and bones wasting away. In light of this, he longs for the goodness to come, that which is stored up. And so, brothers and sisters, as we wait for the Lord, we need to remember that our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. It's not here. And put no trust in the things of the world. Put no uh, lasting value in the things of the world. And this is what uh, this waiting for the Lord is supposed to lead us to do. The last I want you to see that um, this is not easy. This is not easy. The last question says, How long? Man, how many times have you heard that in Scripture? How long, Lord? And I don't know if you've ever been in an extended time of distress, but I know you've at least said in your heart, if not out loud, to the Lord. How long? I mean, how long has this got to go on? I want you to know this that every affliction has an endpoint. Every affliction for God's people has an endpoint, and that's what we're waiting for. We've got to wait for the Lord. The one who will sovereignly and in, in the righteous way, he will bring it to an end. This is what David says when he says, the Lord preserves the faithful. No matter what the trial, whether it's a temporary, whether it's a sickness, whether it's a, a trouble in family, whether it's economic, or whether it's death, there is an end point. And this is exactly what this psalm is ultimately about when it comes right down to it. This psalm is ultimately about that ultimate endpoint, which is our resurrection. Which is our resurrection. Which is actually not the ultimate endpoint, it's really the ultimate beginning. The ultimate beginning. I don't know if you've noticed, but when we read Psalm 31, there's a very, very famous line in here. Very famous line in this psalm that connects this unwavering faith. Uh, this unwavering faith in God's deliverance to this ultimate example we have in Christ. This psalm ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. Verse 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. Does that sound familiar? I want you to think about all the things that David's expressing to us about what he's going through, all this distress he's going through, but I want you to realize that there's nobody, nobody, that has experienced more distress than our Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anybody more afflicted, more grieved, more under reproach, more abandoned, more conspired against, more hated, more persecuted, more besieged or surrounded? Is there anybody who was more ultimately cut off than Jesus Christ? And was there anybody that ever trusted more? or prayed more. And so under the greatest burden anybody could ever imagine, this is exactly what Jesus did. He quoted this psalm. He said with a loud voice from the cross, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Peter describes this as entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The one who judges in a good way, in in the goodness of his character. So Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, provides us with this ultimate example of waiting for the Lord. He's the ultimate example, and he is the ultimate mediator for saints in distress. If you think David has a few things in common with you about distress, what about Jesus? What about Christ, our great high priest? Who, the one who is seated on the throne of grace right now, right now. That thought of the risen Christ having seen and understood all of our afflictions, all of our temptations, that, that thought should give us a heightened sense of David's words in verse 7 when, when he calls out to the Lord and says, I rejoice with steadfast." In your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And so, understand in the midst of your distress that there is an endpoint and a high priest who knows absolutely what's going on. He's absolutely in control of everything's going on. He empathizes with what's going on. He has ordained what's going on, and in his eternal goodness we will persevere. That's exactly what he says. So Christ himself tells us to be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. So Distress will come. It has come. It has come. Afflictions and trials will come. They're going to come more and more in a furious pace, I think, over the next few weeks. I hope I'm wrong. But they are momentary, and they're light in light of eternity. And so, brothers and sisters, please uh, think on these things and wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord and know that he is great and he is good. He sees our afflictions. He knows, man, he knows our distress. He inclines his ear to us. So let's call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, you are indeed great. You are great, sovereign, wise, omniscient. You know everything. Lord, you know the fears of our hearts. Lord, you know the distress that all of my brothers and sisters might be in. Lord, you know every bit of it, Lord. And you have the power and the ability to change it or to cause us to persevere. And Lord, so I pray you'd act in grace and help us through this season. And I pray you'd prove yourself faithful to your people. Build faith among us, Lord. Let us hear testimonies in the future of your faithfulness to hear your people, and to act in power and goodness, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. Lord, help us. In Christ's name, amen.